when you're up against a hostile room of people who don't want to be there, you need real strategies that get results. Welcome to From Hostage to Hero, the show that gives you practical advice you can use right now in the courtroom, boardroom, or classroom. Learn how to move your unwilling audience to one that is invested in what you're saying, eager to participate, and engaged in the process. Learn from the attorney whisperer herself, your host, Sari Delamont. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for being here. We are so excited because at this point in the podcast, the book should be out. I'll be really disappointed if that's not the case. So I'm assuming I'm going into the future since I record these all ahead of time when I batch these podcasts that the book is here. And I'm also assuming that I'm very excited about it. <laughs> I am very excited about it. So I can't imagine why I wouldn't be once they are actually physically here. So if you haven't grabbed your copy yet, head over to trialguides.com and grab a copy of From Hostage to Hero. And I'd love to hear what you think. You know, speaking of hearing what you think, I have heard so much. So many people have come up to me and said, oh my God, I love love your podcast. I wait for episodes every week to drop. I binge them, blah, blah, blah. And as much as I love, love, love hearing that, would you do me a favor and go to iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast and give it a review, um, just an actual review, or even just hit the five stars. If you just love the podcast, I would so do me a solid. That would really help us in terms of the business development, things that we're doing on our end, we really want to get this podcast out into the world and those things make a difference. So if you love the podcast, please go over, give us a review, give us a five stars or whatever uh, the rating is where you listen to, to um, podcasts. I'm assuming it's all five stars. Um, I mean, you can give less than five, but we're hoping you give five. Uh, and thanks in advance for doing that. All right, today we are talking about how to find your ideal juror. Mm, this is a juicy one. I love this topic. This is basically a huge part of my method in terms of voir dire. So this is really the prep part. This is, has nothing to do with the nonverbals. This is all about mindset work and getting clear on who it is that you want to be on your team. So let's take a moment to talk about, before we talk about how to find them, why we're looking for the ideal juror in the first place. I am just amazed. I mean, amazed that most y'all been trained to merely focus on who the bad jurors are. This make no sense to me. It just makes zero sense. I know that we are afraid of the badgers, especially the ones that are hiding in there and ready to kill our cases. Although <laughs> I, I really don't believe in the myth of the rogue juror. Has it happened before where someone has gotten on a jury and said the right things and then just to tear your case apart? I mean, maybe, sure, but I don't think it's this big phenomenon that we all need to like freaking out. It's kind of like, did you read the recent articles about Halloween candy and how, remember that big scare? Again, I'm dating myself, but in the 70s and 80s, I think it was in the 80s actually, maybe late 70s, where there was poison put in candies or razor blade put in candies and like everybody freaked out and I just read an article recently where they said that was all bullshit, like that never actually happened. 
that there was no instance of a stranger handing out candy with razor blades or poison or pills or whatever else in it, that there was, I think, one case, maybe two, I'll have to dig this up, of like a relative trying to poison a child, which is just horrifying, but and using this excuse of that, but there was never any strangers handing out poisonous razor blade candies. And yet it is the urban myth that continues to play out in our collective consciousness. I just find that amazing. I just think that's amazing. So I wonder, and my guess is that it's very similar with the rogue juror, the juror that's the hidden juror that's there to kill our case. If that person exists, I think the, um, like, or the, uh, What's the word that, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Likeability is not the word. Um, you know what the word is. I don't know what the word is. I'm not finding the word. You know, English is my second language. I know I totally sound like an idiot right now, but I know I totally don't have an accent or anything, but Finnish was my first language. And so I find myself sometimes struggling to find the word, but it's very unlikely as likelihood. There it is. It's very unlikely that that is happening. So Here's what I think is wrong with the, and you've heard me talk about this in early podcast episodes, but with just focusing on our quote unquote badgers, is that what you focus on, you create. If that's all you're looking for, that's all you'll find, period. And we want to be on the lookout, not just for the people that are going to kill our case, but the ones that are going to help us get a verdict. I mean, this this whole concept of just weeding out the bad people is like, you know, having, you know, a basketball team that you're trying to put together and people come and I know it's not called an audition. What's that called? A tryout? A tryout. And they come and try out. And all you're focused on is making sure you don't get bad players. So you're all about who the bad players are. That's not how this works. I mean, I'm guessing. I'm not a sports person, so I could be totally wrong. But <laughs> I don't think that's how it works. They're looking at who are the best people here? Who's the best athletes? Who are the best basketball players? Who are the best baseball players? That's who they're looking for. And that's who they want. And that's what they get. But we don't do that, do we? In trial, we do the absolute opposite. We hire consultants to come and just help you figure out how to do cause challenges. My people, what are you doing? I'm not saying that cause challenges don't have a place. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be looking for our bad jurors. But if you don't, if you're not focused on creating a team of heroes, because that's what we're asking jurors to do, take heroic action. You know what the definition of hero is? Someone who does a selfless act for someone else, someone who does selfless action that does not benefit them. I mean, yes, bringing a verdict for your client most likely does affect and benefit the juror in the jury box by making our community safer or holding people accountable or whatever the case may be. But at the beginning of trial, jurors don't know or accept or understand that. What we're asking them to do is put their lives on hold in order to do something for someone else. And let me tell you, the kind and type of person that's going to do that and do that well is a hero, is someone who wants to be there, is someone who's invested in the process, is someone who believes in you, is connected to you. 
So what the hell are you doing standing in front of them, wasting time going, who here is out to get me? Who's the bad apples in this group? I mean, it's literally like me telling you, hey, we need to make apple pie and here's an apple orchard. Go get some apples. And you, we got 30 minutes. Come on. We're entering this baking contest. And you run into the orchard and you start looking at all the apples and you find all these great apples. And you just keep tossing them aside because you're looking for the ones with the bruises. Like what the hell are you doing? That's not what we need to be doing. Will we find our who who's not for us by looking for our ideal juror? Yes. And that's why this makes more sense. Let's look for our team members. Let's look for our heroes. And in the process of looking for them, we will also find the people who are not for us. Then you can use your cause challenges and do all the things that you want to do there. Maybe you have to use your peremptories. But the point is, I want you focused on your ideal juror. Who is the person who is going to take this to verdict? That's what I'm all about. Let's find them. Now, we cannot find them if you do not know what they look like. So we've got to get clear. I don't mean physical appearance. I mean, you have got to go in to trial with such a clear idea of who this person is so that when they show up, you know that they're there and you can develop them and then have them take your your take this whole thing to verdict room. So let's talk about how to do that. Now that we've hopefully um, got you buying into the idea of how important it is to do that. So the number one thing that I hear from clients all the time, when we're talking about Wadir, is how do we talk about this um, particular issue? Or how do we ask jurors about this other issue? And my question always to them is, what do you want to know? So when you start looking at how to find your ideal juror, the first place to start is what would this person be thinking? What kind of beliefs would they hold? And the best way I have found to figure that out is to start with your issues in your case. What are all the things that you're afraid of? What are all the things the defense is going to say? What are the things the defense isn't going to say, but you're afraid that it may come up or your client may blurt it out or it's keeping you up at night? Whatever the issue is, I want you to take that issue and I want you to ask yourself a very, very important question. Here's the question. What would an ideal juror have to think or believe to negate or nullify this fear so that it was no longer a fear? This would have to fly out of my, fly out of their mouth. And I'd be like, that's a good juror for me. What would they have to think or, or say? Now, every time I talk about the ideal juror profile, people they just, this is so hard for them to wrap their minds around because you guys aren't used to thinking about it like this. You're not thinking about what would fix this. You're thinking how to frame this. Now that's a very different question, a very different thing to do. When you have the issues in your case, there's case framing, right? There's all about how am I going to position this so that it makes the most sense or that it makes us look the best or that we can handle it in trial or blah, 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 blah. But I'm asking you, what would actually fix this? So let's say, for example, and this isn't the most, you know, shiny, great example. And I'm sorry if it offends anyone, but it just came to mind to me as I was scratching out some notes for this podcast. Let's say that you are infertile, male or, male or female. And so your fear is finding a, a spouse or a significant other because you, you're fearing that most people want children 
and your inability to either carry a child or produce a child um, is really going to lower your chances at, at ever finding a significant other. And I'm not, I'm not legitimizing that fear. I'm just saying that that is your fear. We're using it as an example. So you might think of all the different ways you could frame that issue. You could say, well, if I meet someone, I could tell them, you know, that kids are terrible and it's awful to have children. Um, and so they probably don't want children anyway. Or I could frame it as, you know, all the f- great things that we can do and the fun things that we could do without children and how um, we could make our lives full without it. And I, those are all framing. Those are all taking an issue and finding a way to position it so that you can influence or, or persuade someone to your point of view. That's not what I'm asking you to do here. What I'm asking you to do here is f- find out what would fix this. So in the fertility example, what would fix it is finding someone who says, I don't want children. Simple, fixes it. Or finding someone who already has kids. And you're like, great, built-in family, that works for me. Whatever the, the thing is, that's a fix. So a fix is different than a frame. I'm not asking you how to frame it. That's what you all are thinking about when you're thinking about your case issues. I'm asking you, what would fix this problem, okay? So for example, in the recent Texas case, many of you heard me talk about, I'm so mad I didn't go to trial because it was such a great case, dram shop case, over-serving case. The question there was how do we get the jurors to talk about or believe that the bar has responsibility when the driver is the person that went and made this decision to drive and ended up killing two people and really harming a third. I mean, that's a hard thing to do. And so my first question is to them wasn't, well, here's how we can frame it or how are you thinking about framing is, what would a juror have to think about that? What would our ideal juror believe about that? And we came up with tons of things. We had flip charts all over the room on day one. We were just talking about our ideal juror and getting into the mind of our ideal juror. And we had things like, you can't make a decision past a certain point, right? So this person really wasn't making a decision after they had had 20 drinks. That You can't make decisions at that point. Now, will every juror believe that? Probably not. But our ideal juror would believe that. That decision-making becomes uh, limited, if not null and void, after a certain number of drinks. And you're not even able to make decisions. Um, we, we, ha- we wanted jurors to believe, which can, became a big theme, if not the theme in our case, uh, bars can prevent drunk driving. They play a huge part in preventing drunk driving because they can cut people off. And they should. And the law requires that they do that. And we came up with a bunch of other beliefs. But the whole point was we spent a whole day, if not a day and a half, getting inside, and I do this with all my clients, getting inside the brain of an ideal juror. What would this person think and believe to help us get a verdict for our client? But what do you guys do? You guys... (laughs) Almost always spend all that time trying to, if you do it at all, getting into the mind of your evil juror, of your bad juror, and what do they think, and how do they believe, and and then you go to framing, and then, well, how can we frame our argument to fit their worldview? You guys, stop. Stop. I mean it. I'm not saying that you shouldn't frame your argument to appeal to various points of view. What I am saying is that you guys, you're going at this all wrong. 
when you go looking for your ideal juror and if you know how to form the group, that group dynamic along with the way that you shape and facilitate the conversation of Wadir will solve all of your framing, quote unquote, problems. Do we still frame our case? Absolutely. One of our ideal juror beliefs was bars can prevent drunk driving. That also became a theme in our case. And that also then became a way that we framed the case. So they're not mutually exclusive. But understanding that looking for your ideal juror will help you frame the case instead of the other way around is what you guys are doing is looking at the bad juror and going, how do I frame my case so it appeals to that person? You know, research shows that that's fairly impossible. I mean, yes, if you can frame your case to appeal to their worldview, great. And that that's the one way that we may be able to make this work. But I'm saying there's an easier way. Find your people that believe in what you already believe. Now, if you're in a conservative district, which is where this dram shop case was, I mean, yes, we have to frame it in a certain way. We had to talk about personal responsibility and, and you know, we had to deal with all of those issues for sure. And we had a whole ideal juror profile on what an ideal juror would think about that whole personal responsibility issue, since that was a huge issue in this case. So I'm not suggesting you don't do any of that. But what I'm suggesting is you're starting in the wrong place. First, let's figure out who is our ideal juror and why? What, do th- what does this person think? How do they think? What kinds of things would have to fly out of their mouth to make us calm down and stop being so nervous about the issues in our case? Because once you get super clear on who that person is, then you know how to conduct your voir dire. In fact, I don't know how people conduct voir dire without having this idea. If you go in there and you have no idea who this person is and what you're looking for, that is why I see all these voir dires that where you guys are up there looking like a deer in headlights going, I don't know what the hell I'm doing up here. I don't know what the hell you're doing either. Because if it were me, I wouldn't know what I was doing. If I don't know who I'm looking for and what questions to ask to find them, by the way, once you have your ideal juror profile, now you know what to ask. You just need to ask questions to find out if they believe these things. When I teach this method, even with my Texas case, first day they thought I was off my rocker. They're like, what the hell is this method, right? They didn't buy into it. Day two, when we had our first mock jury, they were like, oh my God, (laughs) this works. Yeah, because once they went in there and started asking the jury all these questions to try to ferret out who in there were their ideal jurors, the jurors gave them everything they needed. I mean, that's the number one feedback I get from this method. Oh my God, sorry. The jurors just said all the things that we want them to say and we'll use an opening. Now, you might think, well, I don't want them saying those things because then the other side will find out where they are and they'll kick them off. They're not going to be able to kick all of them off. And if you're good at group dynamics, which you will be if you work with me, you'll have formed the group and you'll have that group will have influence. This is why group formation is such a huge part of this whole process as well. It's not just about finding your ideal jurors. It's creating a group of those ideal jurors so they like save the day in the verdict room. Don't be too afraid of that. I know that's a consideration, but I've just not found that it's a big enough consideration for you to limit your voir dire to superficial questions, surface questions, and not find any out anything meaningful, form your group, find your ideal juror. I just, it's just not enough of a risk for me to not suggest you do the things that I'm suggesting that you do. And again, 
with all of this advice. It's uh, take all of it under advisement. Don't just blindly go out there and start trying this shit and you don't know what the hell you're doing. And I mean, come work with me, practice it, use your own instincts and your and your abilities and and some freaking common sense. Every case needs its own personal touch and I'm not there to help you with a, a lot of this. So take this with a grain of salt, of course. But what I want you to to get from today's podcast episode is that what you focus on, you create. And a huge part of your job in trial, and this will make it easier. Everything becomes easier. And this is the number one feedback I get from everyone. Everything falls into place once we understand who our ideal juror is. We know the things that they believe. So again, to recap, the number one way to find them is take your issues and for each issue, come up with two to three statements that would negate or nullify that fear right off the bat. That if this person believed those things, this is a juror for us. And you just continue down your issues list until you have 20 or 30 statements that just accurately describe your ideal juror. Now, will every juror that's ideal for you have everything checked off on that list? No, but they should have the majority of the things checked off on that list. And that's a great way for you to evaluate your voir dire as well, as you might imagine. All right. I hope that's helpful. As always, when you have questions about the podcast or you read something in the book, the From Hostage to Hero Facebook group is a perfect place to list your questions. I have people posting questions in there or emailing you privately. Please try to do it in the Facebook group because doing that gets the activity going and shows other people that, that they can also post too. And I'll go in there and do a live and I'll clarify. So if you go, hey, I talked to you, heard you talk about ideal juror profile and I don't get this one thing, go in there and post. And if you aren't a member, go ask to be a member and I'll do a Facebook live on it or I'll answer your question um, if I can by, by typing. But somehow your question will get answered. That's what the point of that group is. So use it. We're developing quite a community in there. We had a great Facebook Live today, uh, which of course will be four weeks from actually today, a month ago. (laughs) I'm recording today, but it was once you hear this episode, it'll be a month from then. All right, so use that group to your advantage. That's why it's there. All right, my friends, we'll talk soon. That's it for this episode of From Hostage to Hero. But head to our website, sorrydlm.com, for other must-have resources from Sorry Delamart. Read the transcript of this podcast, watch trial tip videos, or download your free copy of Sorry's article, Why Jurors Hate the Hobby Question. We're glad you joined us today, and until next time, remember that to lead a hostage to freedom, you must first free yourself.